So welcome. We are going to finish today. Uh, we're going to finish today the um, cycle of tears. <laughs> we started with Yaakov and Rachel. We then went on to Esau, Esau's three tears, then Yosef's tears. And today we're going to finish up with uh, the tears of Benjamin, the tears of Benjamin. And so let us begin. If you remember from last week, we had analyzed all the scenes. And remember, we said one, two, and three had to do with the weeping of Joseph. The climactic scene, which we're going to talk about today, and then the last three in which Joseph is meeting up with Jacob and weeping. So we're going to focus on this particular scene, Genesis 45, 14, and 15. Vayipol al-savare And Joseph fell al-savare binyamin. Now this word savare means the neck, and we had that neck of Esau, which became when he tried to kiss Jacob, the Midrash tells us that his neck became like marble. So we've had that word, the tzavarei binyamim achiv, and he cried. He falls onto the neck of Benjamin and he cried. Now, the word tzavarei is a problem because it's in the plural. Do you see that? It should have been tzavar. And in fact, if we look at the reciprocal verse, the very next verse, then we find in return, ubinyomim bacha al tsavarav in the singular. So this is a big problem, big problem for Rashi. Vayev al tsavarav, Lashon harbos bechia. The Lashon is owed. Let's find the Midrash that supports the Rashi. And the Midrash comes, that Rashi brings, comes from Midrash Rabbah. Kamigdal David Savorech. Ah, in true Midrashic style, Rashi is picking us up and pointing us uh, to the uh, Midrash and the Gemara. So the Gemara says, Vayipol al Savare bin Yomimachiv. Savare is written in the plural as necks in the plural. And the Gemara asks, How many necks did bin Yomim had? How many necks? He wasn't a Siamese twin. He had one neck. So why are you telling me in the plural? Now, Rashi in the Gemara says that this whole question should be deleted from the text because very often scripture will use the plural as the singular and the singular as the plural. So Rashi is being a grammarian, but the Marshal will have nothing of that. He does not delete the question. He notes that the Gemara is noting a discrepancy in the way neck is written with regard to Benjamin and with regard to Yosef. Benjamin, it says Savare in the plural. Joseph, it says Savarov in the singular. And so the Gemara answers, how many necks does Binyamin have? Omar Rabbi Elazar. Rabbi Elazar teaches us something very profound. Bocha, what was he really crying about? Yes, he was crying that they'd missed each other 22 years. He never saw his, he never saw his bris. He never saw nothing. There was that moment of reconciliation, but there's something else because it says two necks. So it's not about the present. It's about the future. The way Jacob was crying when he kissed Rachel because he realized in the future 
Am Yisrael would be going into Galut. She would not be buried in Hebron. She'd be on the way. So too here. Benjamin is crying on the neck of Joseph. And Joseph is crying on the necks of Benjamin. What are the necks? Kama, bocha al shnei mikdashim. Joseph now is already weeping about the two destructions of the temple, the bias Rishon and the bias Sheni. She'atidin lios bechelko shel binyomin va'atidin lechorev. On the one hand, they will be in the territory of Benjamin, no question about it that they will be in the territory of Benjamin. The first temple erected by King Solomon in 832 and destroyed by the Babylonians 410 years later. And the second temple built on the same site, well, depending on if you're archaeologically inclined or not, at 352 and destroyed by the Romans in 69. And both those temples were in the tribe of Benjamin. And then what, therefore... Rabbi Elazar continues, Benjamin weeps on the neck of Joseph, and that's in the singular. Why? He was crying over the Mishkan of Shiloh that, in fact, was only one Mishkan and would also uh, be destroyed, uh, the Mishkan of Shiloh, which was in Joseph's territory and its wooden wall sections replaced by the walls of stone of the sanctuary. The Shiloh sanctuary served as the spiritual epicenter of the Jewish people for 369 years until it was destroyed by the Philistines in 888. So herein lies the significance that they wept on each other's necks. Well, what does the neck refer to? And here, the Midrash comes in with this wonderful pun. The neck, it quotes, look over here, Kamigdal David Savarech. Your neck, the dode, the lover, is comparing her anatomy in chapter four of Song of Songs. When it comes to her thighs, he talks about that, then it, her belly, and he goes up higher, higher, her breasts, and now he comes to her neck. Kamigdal David, Savarech, your neck is like the Tower of David. What do you mean the Tower of David? Ze Beit HaMikdash, the Tzavarech, the neck, is referring to the Holy Temple. So the Medrash says, and why does the verse liken the Temple to a neck? As long as the Temple was standing, Oh, this was a national sense of pride. Like the holy temple is standing, the necks of Am Yisrael were outstretched among the peoples of the world. Outstretched. And that outstretched is, in fact, that sense of pride. And like when the Beis Amikdosh was destroyed, the necks of Am Yisrael became bent. So the neck has this ability to stand upright in pride and bend over in shame. Okay, and Dova Acher, another explanation as to the metaphor of using the neck. In the human anatomy, the neck is positioned on the highest part of the person. Kach Beit Natun. 
On a cosmic level, the temple is positioned on the highest part of the world. So here we have an intimation of the mystical concept of the world being centered around Jerusalem, centered around the Harabai, centered around the Beis Amikdosh. And the Beis Amikdosh then becomes the neck, which is the highest part of the world. And just like a neck where all the ornaments and necklaces are hung from the neck, so too the priesthood and the holy temple and the Levites are the ornaments of the neck of the temple. And just like the neck contains the trachea that gives life to the man, that's a euphemism for Am Yisrael. When the temple was destroyed, there was no longer any oxygen for Am Yisrael. It lost its oxygen. So this is a beautiful metaphor that the neck of Am Yisrael represents the Beis Hamikdash. The question, of course, that is not answered. The neck supports the head. <laughs> so what's the head? Obviously, the head is the Shekhinah that rests. Now, now we have a problem, and the problem is, is it true that the temple was in Benjamin? We're told in the Gomorrah in Yuma that in fact, uh, that wasn't so Pashut. It was only after uh, Benjamin had complained and cried. It's the very tears of Benjamin uh, that in fact produced the response that Benjamin uh, will receive a portion. Um, and I, we go to Rashi, which was in the blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu, in which he tells us the following, Ulabinyan Amar. And to Benjamin, he says, Lefi, because the question is, why is Benjamin and Yosef stuck right after Levi? It doesn't come with the correct order of the Shvatim. That's a lovely discussion we can have about the differences between the order of blessings by Jacob and the order of blessings by Moshe. But let's look at Rashi on Binyamin. It's why the apposition of Benjamin, to the, the blessing of Benjamin to Levi, because the blessings of Levi refer to the temple. And that's why he's placed right after Levi, because he too had a sanctuary in his territory. And what about Somach Yosef? Well, Yosef had Mishkan Shiloh. It had Bono Bechelko, as it says in, 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 in the Pasuk in Tehillim, 78. Actually, there's a dispute at the Gemara in Zvochim, 118, as to whether the Mishkan Shiloh was in fact in the tribe of Ephraim, the son of Yosef. But our Medrash, and certainly Rashi is quoting the Medrash, that is of the opinion that Shiloh was in the tribe of Levi. But it was the tears of Binyamin, in fact, that allowed his portion to actually bisect, bisect the territory of Judah. And we're told in Yuma 22 that the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, the, the line marking the border, ran just east of the altar. 
I mean, that's just amazing. So that beginning with the altar, everything to the West, including the altar itself, the antechamber, the Mishkan, the Koche Kopchin, belong to Benjamin. Everything to the East, including the 22 Amas of the Kohanim and Israelites Chotzer and the women's Chotzer and the Eastern segment of the Temple Mount belong to Judah. The line dividing the courtyard did not cut straight across, but dipped back to the east one amma short of the northeast corner of the altar. So a huge piece of Gemara in Zvachim and in Yuma. In addition, a strip of land extended west from Judah at the southeast corner of the altar, stopping one amma short of its southwest corner right here. The altar's base belonged to Judah. The altar's base, had it completely encircled the altar, would have thus extended into the Judean territory. Since the altar was to be entirely in Binyamin's territory, the base did not extend out along the border. So there is one side of it that has no base. So we're kochzaim, we're, we're, we're steiging into this, this separation of Judah and Benjamin to show that Benjamin, in fact, does receive the territory, does receive the temple in his territory. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built to hold the talpiot. Talpiot could be either weapons or the way the Gemara says, tail, a mound, pios, that we daven to. Hung with a thousand shields, all quivers of the warrior. Okay. So this is the crying that's going on between Yosef and Binyamin. Vayipol al sabare binyamim And Benjamin cried on his neck. And we're told that this has to do with the Khurban, with the destruction of both temples. Now, let's go back to the neck and understand the neck a little bit deeper. The sanctuary being the neck of the world. It's a precarious joint, the neck. As we know from the guillotines of the French Revolution. And there are two approaches to the function of the neck in spirituality, which will come back to the tears, don't worry. The one is that the soul fills the body, and especially by Chabad, the soul is the Nefesh Ruach Neshama, the Chachmah, Bin and Das is in the head. So the source starts with the head. And the neck is the connection between the head and the body, between the creator and the creation, between the soul and the physical self. So the two are intertwined, but the neck is that negotiating space. And when the holy temple stood in Jerusalem and served as the spiritual nerve center of the universe, it enhanced the bond between the body and soul, between heaven and earth, between God and his creation. And so the state of the head is never a cause for distress. The head remains the quintessential soul. It can never be compromised or corrupted. But they foresaw times when the neck between the heaven and earth, spirit and matter, would be damaged, alienating earth from heaven, body from soul, splitting the divine between Yudke Vavke and Adonai. And so Joseph is crying over Benjamin's two destroyed sanctuary and Benjamin over Joseph's Shiloh. The same question arises further on when he meets with, with his father. I want you to compare and contrast the difference. Finally, when Joseph meets up with his father, what does it say? By Yosef Merchavto, he ordered his chariot. 
Vayar Likras Yisrael, and he went to Goshen to meet his father from the palace in, in Egypt, Goshna, Vayera Elov, and he presented himself to him, Vayipol al Savarov Vayet al Savarov Od. He wept on his shoulder, and he wept on his shoulder Od a good while, a good while. And Rashi then says, what is the word Od? Od is Lashon Harbus Bechia, much weeping. The final weeping of Yosef with his father is Harbos Bechia. Harbos Bechia. And so he now weeps over the destruction of the sanctuaries of Benjamin, and he weeps when he sees his father. I want to share with you a dramatic moment. What is missing from this verse? The one thing that's missing is, and Jacob wept on Joseph's neck. It's a glaring omission. Everywhere else, there's a mutual weeping on the neck. And Chazal are very bothered by it. Chazal are so bothered by it. They tell us something so strange that it wants to make you, I don't know, like he hasn't seen his son in 22 years. And finally, he meets up with him. And what happens? He cries on his father. And what does his father do? He doesn't do a thing. And so Rashi has to quote a Midrash that says, oh, yes, he did something. He did something very dramatic. What he did was to say Kriya Shema. Sounds very from. He wanted to say Kriya Shema that moment. Now, it says, Vayechi Yaakov. Yaakov became re-enlivened because for 22 years in Avelut and in sadness, the Shekhinah left him. And now the Shekhinah came back. So he wanted to say Kriya Shema to acknowledge the Shekhinah. Very nice. But I want to dig a little bit deeper. Why is it that, in fact, he wouldn't cry in return? And I want to quote to you the Shem Mishmuel, the Sochachov's son, the Avnei Neza's son-in-law. He says, my holy father explained that there is a distinct similarity between the physiological function of the neck and the purpose of the Beis Amikdosh. It's the link between the head and body. We discussed that. Between the physical and intellectual, we discussed that. The purpose of the Beis Amikdosh is to be a link, not an end in itself. It is a link between God and his spirituality to the physical world. It's a conduit, a wormhole of spiritual flux through which two unlikely, paradoxically inimicable, completely opposite the spiritual and the physical world could somehow meet. He quotes the Arizal that says there are three primary organs in the neck, the veshet, the trachea, and the jugular vein, <laughs> the gullet, the windpipe, and the jugulus. Each of them has not just a physical purpose, but a distinctly spiritual one. The windpipe produces the sounds of prayer and Torah study. The gullet ingests food, which will be separated into its components. The good parts used to refine the body and the bad, the waste to be eliminated. And then the good parts eventually vitalize the blood, which is transported from the heart to the brain via the jugulars. So this neck becomes this conduit of things going down, things going up. It's really 
a railway station. And so these three functions, not only in the physical neck, but in the spiritual neck, the base amygdosh, is a conduit for our prayers. Okay. So when Yosef meets Yaakov, the Maharal says as follows. When Yaakov saw Yosef, his son, as king, his heart was filled with love and fear of God, noticing how his means of dealing with the world are good and perfect and how he rewards those who fear him. <laughs> now, he couldn't be consoled, this man, Jacob. But now when he sees ya Yosef, suddenly everything comes into relief. Noiro Ali Law, you are such a great schemer. This is the practice of Hasidim. When good things happen to them, they cleave. That doesn't mean Hasidish people. Hasidim, according to the Maharal, are the Anshe Ashkenaz from the 1300s. When good things happen to them, they cleave to God because of the good. This is represented by saying the Shema, the unity of the kingdom of heaven, as well as the love, the Ahafta, that we must have. So therefore, it was appropriate for him to say Kriya Shema because of his son. Now that he saw him as king, he loved God who had done this for him. Now, it was not the time for saying the Shema, like every morning and evening, but instead this was a spontaneous gesture of love for the divine, which was particularly pertinent to Yaakov's circumstances. The Shemishmul then has his own twist, which I love. He says that Yosef represented the antipathy of Esau. What does Aesop do? Aesop splits. He splits between heaven and earth. He splits between the physical and the spiritual. He splits between the transcendent divine and the imminent divine. That is Aesop. What is Aesop? Edom. Edom is Paro. Paro is Amalek. And Paro is on the back of the neck. Haron Af. You are a stiff-necked people. And in Kabbalah, Paro has a unique purpose to disconnect the head from the heart by the neck. There's a joke that Litvaks wear a gartel around the neck that splits the head from the heart. Hasidim wear the gartel around the belt between head and heart and the vegetative organs. And so Paro represents this, Aesop represents this disconnecting of the neck and comes along the Shemishmur and says something very profound. He says Yaakov's response to Yosef is a response to seeing the adversary of Esau triumph. When he sees Yosef survive, he's seeing the triumph of the unity of the head and the heart through the neck, the tzavah. He sees the unity of the spiritual and the physical, which is the unique ability of Am Yisrael. He sees the transcendent in the imminent. And so he says, Kriya Shema, because what's Kriya Shema? Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Yudke Vavke, the transcendent one, Elokeinu is the same as the imminent one. Elokim is the gematri of Teva, the imminence. So through Yosef, Shemishmul is spinning this relationship between Yosef and the Sitna, the opposition of Aesop, as the opposition between mystical Judaism and classical Orthodox theological Judaism. And he's saying, when I see Yosef, the first thing he did was to realize by saying Kriya Shema 
that the transcendent was in the imminent. Yosef was overjoyed to see Yaakov after so many years and doubtless turned his feelings of love and gratitude heavenward, as did his father. But there was a crucial difference. Yosef was already in exile. The opening moments of his exilic experience were long past. He lived in Egypt for years and was not starting anything new or spectacular at the moment he met Yaakov. And therefore, saying Shema could not fulfill the same function for Yosef as it could for Yaakov. But Yaakov met Yosef at the border of Canaan and Egypt, and Yaakov expressed these feelings not to his son, but directed them to the source of the one above. Very nice. And so I wanted to share just a thought with you, as we've come full circle with all these tears, that in fact, I call it the Hal Lakramarum Vale. Now I've stolen this because it's, <laughs> it's a sacred hymn that the Goyim use, but I love it because in this hymn, they talk about this veil of tears. Now for them, of course, it's a different veil of tears. It's the loss of their savior. But the veil of tears has become an expression in, in, in the canon of Western literature. And we started with the whole cycle of Genesis and I tried to frame for you the last four weeks through the tears of Jacob and Esau and Yosef and now with Yaakov and Benjamin, that these tears really become the harbinger through which we in the Medrash talk about it and say, well, the neck or necks that they are weeping on have to do with our connection with the divine, which is the Beis Amikdash. But when is Redrish writing it? It's writing it over here in Galut. We're looking back at these stories of Genesis through the tears of these wonderful patriarchal narratives and looking at them with the eye to the neck of these patriarchs, which are the temple of Shiloh and the first and second destruction. 500 years later in Galut, we're writing these Midrashic narratives. The Emek Habacha, Hu Yachmol Olaich Legmar. In Galut, we sing in Lechor Dodi, quoting Psalm 84. The Emek Habacha, the veil of tears. And I have to therefore end with the last tear maker of all. We started with Galut, we end with the worst moment in Galut in the Holy Piasetzner who writes in just before he was transported to Treblinka, the end of 43, uh, 42, early 43. He says in the Eish Kodesh, the master of the universe does not ignore the suffering of Am Yisrael. He weeps together with us, the faith and continuous sense of God's closeness. Letatar panumine, the Zoya says, there is no place devoid of him, even here in the horror of the ghetto, means that God is with us literally. Hence, our weeping is not something external to God, rather he joins in it. What a statement. Our weeping is not something external to God. This is true to the Hasidic understanding of the Hishtalshalus, that the transcendent is within the imminent, Hitgashmut, that everything is part of the world is in God. It is possible to hear the silent inner weeping of the divine presence 
that joins with the weeping of Am Yisrael and the weeping of each and every individual Jew. This joint weeping, we've gone from the tears of Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef. We've gone now to the tears of the divine. This joint weeping creates a renewed intimacy with God. I've never heard anyone ever say such a thing in our literature. This is new Kabbalah that has never, ever been said before. The joint weeping creates a renewed intimacy with the Abishter, the sort of intimacy that sometimes develop between people who reveal their shared suffering to each other. And if this gives rise to prayer or Torah, then it is not Torah that is extraneous to suffering, but rather the Torah that is born of that suffering. Not only is it not alienated from it, but it has the power to comfort and console. I mean, what a dazzling understanding of Torah, that our Torah has to be a reflection of our suffering. We have to see ourselves in the text, in the tears. That is the message of the Holy Piyasetna. And then he adds something so heartbreaking, I can't even say it. And then he answers himself, but I am so broken. I have cried so much, so many tears. My whole life is fraught with grief and dejection. That's a quote from Yirmiyahu. He is lost inside his introspective self-analytical confusion. It is the Holy One who is crying within the inner chambers, and whoever presses himself close to God through Torah is able to weep there together with God and learn Torah with him. There is the difference. This is the new Kabbalah. The pain and grief that one suffers over his own situation alone in isolation can break a person. He may even fall so far that he becomes immobilized by it. But that a crying and the tears that a person does together with the Abishter makes him strong. He cries and takes strength. He is shattered and then emboldened to study and to worship. God's inner sanctuaries unlike what we're told in classical Jewish literature, are not upstairs in the heavens. They are in the recesses of our soul, our innermost existence. Submission to suffering happens in the outer sanctuaries, the world of Asiya, the tangible objective world. But when the soul finds strength to look beyond the suffering, or when it looks inside to that deep place within the sorrow that is not embittered or despair towards life, but rather a genuine sorrow over the situation of the Shechina, over the absurdity of existence, then it encounters the inner sanctuary and discovers that its weeping is not alone. In that place, the divine is weeping with us. I think that these words bring to a close this veil of tears that we have been going through for 2,000 years. The Abishu should bring to the end of this, this Ka'ula that we've been waiting for. And uh, maybe Rob Cook's enlightened experience that Klal Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael with a new Torah Yisrael uh, is the beginning of the Ka'ula. Have a wonderful week.